Let's pray for the preached word. Our great God, as we come to the time in our service where we sit under the teaching of your word, God, we pray that that you would give Pastor David boldness to proclaim your word. God, we pray that, that you would bless the diligence that he has displayed and, and continues to seek. God, we pray that you would give him your wisdom, Lord, as he seeks to rightly divide your word today. And we pray that you would open the ears of those within the sound of his voice, God, that they would hear your word and that they would learn to live by your word and love your word more every day. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Take your seat and turn with me to Mark's Gospel. Again, we're we'll looking today at the first eight verses of Mark chapter 1. You ever waited a long time for a response for something? Imagine yourself having a family member, and sometime around the 17th century, you're in Europe, and a family member has traveled and sought to make a new life in the new world, all the way across the Atlantic. And you began to hear rumors of strife and difficulty, and so you write a letter, and you send it aboard a ship across the Atlantic, And very likely, it is months before you hear a response. And in all those months, you don't know if your letter even got through or not, whether your loved one is even alive or not. Months would elapse not knowing the outcome. I remember feeling somewhat like that during our adoption process. We'd filled out all the paperwork. We had prayed for months and years, and we submitted the paperwork. We were told... Now it's time to wait, and it could be months and months before you hear anything at all. In 1844, Samuel Morse, you may recognize the last name, uh, the namesake of Morse Code, sent the very first message from an electronic telegraph. He sent it from Washington, D.C. to Baltimore, Maryland, and his message proved almost prophetic Here was this message, the first telegraph ever sent, what hath God wrought? The telegraph profoundly changed communications, didn't it? Making it easier to communicate instantly almost. In fact, this was 1844. By 1861, Western Union had finished the work on the very first telegraph line that reached from the East Coast to the West. See, all of us have grown up in an era of instant communication. Our brains don't even know how to process waiting for a response, do we? Now we send a text to someone and we're, they're not responding right away. It's the question mark. Are you, are you there? Are you, are you? We're, we're used to that instant response. Now imagine yourself in the first century, prior to the birth of Christ, And heaven has been silent for 400 years. 
generation after generation after generation, God, through his prophets, had spoken to his people. And the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, closes with these words, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Then, as it were, the curtain comes down. And nothing from God but silence for 400 years. God did not speak to his people for four centuries. Then all of a sudden, one day an angel of the Lord appears to a man named Zechariah, who just so happens it was his turn to serve as priest in the temple of God. And the angel tells Zechariah that his barren wife, Elizabeth, will give birth to a son who will come in the spirit and the power of Elijah to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. His son would be named John, and he would be the very last of the Old Testament prophets. You think about that? John appears in the New Testament, but he's really the last of the Old Testament prophets. At last, after 400 years waiting for a response from God, God speaks again to his people. Now, what we're going to find as we look at the life and the ministry and the testimony of John the Baptist, recorded for us in Mark chapter 1, and recorded in all four of the Gospels, by the way, John comes with this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, John's message is, has much in common with all the prophets who had gone before him, but there's one key distinction. All the prophets that had come before John said the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is on its way. John the Baptist comes and says the kingdom has come. The kingdom is at hand. And its king is here. Mark begins his gospel with a testimony of the public ministry of John the Baptist. In fact, all four of the gospel writers include early on in their narratives the testimony about, God, about John the Baptist's earthly ministry. It's impossible, really, for us to overstate how very important the ministry of John the Baptist was and how revolutionary it was. Later on, years later, Luke, in the book of Acts, would describe the apostle Paul's ministry as having turned the world upside down. I think we could apply the same kind of phrase, the same kind of statement to John's ministry in Judea. He turned Judea upside down. One of the things that is is a potential pitfall when we come to passages that are somewhat familiar to us, and John's ministry and the baptism of John, or John's baptizing, and we'll look next week at John baptizing our Lord Jesus, because those are somewhat familiar to us, we can sort of lose sight of the significance And we fail, in a sense, to put ourselves in the place or in the perspective of those who first heard this message. To us, it doesn't seem shocking. Come and be baptized for the remission of your sins. But for a Jew, 
that turned the world upside down. And I'll tell you in a little bit why. Let's read together Mark's gospel. I'm going to begin at the very beginning and read the first eight verses. John comes and proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are some particular features in the way that John's ministry develops and what's recorded for us here in Mark that parallels Matthew and Luke and John that are, in a sense, paradigmatic. They are, they are a template, as, as if you will, a paradigm for the gospel in every age, in every generation, in every place. So here now, the word of God, as we read Mark's gospel, chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins, Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's notice in the first place, I'm going to look at three things here in the text that, again, become a paradigm for gospel proclamation in every place and at every time. And the first one is that the gospel begins in the mind of God. The gospel is not the invention of men, saints. The gospel is, it begins in the mind of God. Secondly, the gospel declares the true problem is sin. And the gospel promises. The gospel promises inward change. The gospel promises inward change. Let's look at the, at the text here more carefully. Let's notice in the first place that the gospel is rooted in the mind of God as it's revealed in his word. See, what we find here, Mark, and, and, and again, we mentioned this last week, you're going to hear, you're going to feel like you're talking to Peter sometimes as you're reading and studying the Gospel of Mark because of its pacing, because of its urgency, because there's no, there, there's no fluff in the, in the Gospel of Mark. There's no extra word. There's no fluff in all of Scripture. But, but with, with Mark, there's, a, there's an urgency and immediacy. And, and Mark dives right in. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Matthew quotes the same passage. Luke quotes the same passage. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Mark quotes from Isaiah chapter 40. And he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 40 to explain why John is here and why John is important for the sake of the gospel. Remember, Mark begins, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, then what does John the Baptist have to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. 
Isaiah makes the connection. I'm going I'm to read the, the fuller passage from which Mark quotes. In Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 30, or verse 3, I'm sorry, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely, people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Do you see what Mark's doing? And often we'll see this in the New Testament. We find an Old Testament quote. It's, it's always helpful to go back and read the whole, the whole section, sometimes the whole chapter, sometimes it's multiple chapters, and get a sense of, what, what is the, the biblical author, the human author, referencing through the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? And we have here not only the voice of one, a messenger who comes as a forerunner. That's the title of today's sermon, the forerunner. But also, what is the message? And here, we said very specifically in Isaiah, what shall I cry out? Here's what you cry out. Human beings are like grass. And the mere breath of God can destroy them. What is enduring then? What is permanent? If even human beings, the pinnacle of creation, if all the hills are going to be flattened out, if the mountains are going to be laid low, and even the human beings, like, you blow, God blows on them and they're gone. What is permanent? What is abiding? What is true? What is sure? What is real? The Word of God. The eternal counsel of God expressed in his written word. That's what we can hold on to. That's what's foundational. That is what is sure and lasting and abiding. The word of our God will stand forever. God had repeatedly foretold a day would come. From the very beginning, from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, from the very beginning, God had said one day, I will raise up a redeemer. In Genesis chapter 3, immediately after Adam and Eve had rebelled willfully and transgressed God's law, God cursed the serpent and said, one day, one day, while you've been pursuing the seed of the woman, one day I will raise up one who will crush your head. The seed. And remember in Galatians, Paul makes a big deal out of the fact that it's not seeds, plural, but seed, singular. The seed would come, who would crush the head of the serpent. Then in Genesis 12, when God, when God calls Abram, he tells Abraham, Abram, something very similar. Out of your own loins, out of your own body will come a seed. Again, singular. A seed who will be a blessing to all the nations. To Moses, Moses said, Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. You shall listen to him. 
over and over and over again throughout the prophets, throughout the law, we see God promising that one day he would raise up a deliverer. And the word of God is sure. The word of God endures. The word of God does not dissolve. It is not fickle and fleeting like the grass of the field, even human beings. But it stands, it endures. In Isaiah chapter 11, then it will be in that day, verse 10, that the nations will seek the root of Jesse. Jesse, of course, was the father of David, King David. In that day, the nations will seek the root of Jesse, who will stand as a standard for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Then it will be in that day that the Lord will again acquire the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain, and he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished, son, the banished ones of Israel and will gather the scattered of Judah from the four corners of the earth. One day, a branch of Jesse, a seed of David, will come who will not only gather Israel, but even the peoples, the nations, the Gentiles will be gathered in. Then in Isaiah 53, that, that, the, the, the famous servant song of Isaiah, chapter 53 and verse 11, as a, right, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he, the servant, will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. And then Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, walking along the road to Emmaus. This is recorded for us in Luke chapter 24. Jesus is walking along, and there's two disciples there. They don't recognize him, and Jesus kind of plays along, and, and Jesus asks them, what, what things are you distressed about? He said, where have you been that you don't know these things? Are you the only one in Israel who doesn't know? I mean, you almost hear him. What rock have you been under? And Jesus says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So it's not accidental, it's not coincidental that Mark begins with a statement from Isaiah that the word of God endures forever. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, stands and is rooted in the eternal mind of God that's expressed in his word. The gospel that John preached centered around this long-awaited Redeemer, the Savior, the Lord of his people, Jesus, the Son of God, the Holy One of Israel, the Anointed One, David's Son, and yet David's God. So saints, as you contemplate the gospel of Jesus Christ, as you have opportunity to share that gospel with a coworker, a neighbor, a friend, your own children, don't neglect that this is rooted in the word of God. This doesn't begin in your own mind, and your children need to know this. Mommy and Daddy didn't invent this. Your neighbors need to know this isn't, this isn't some moral proposition that, that, that men have invented. This is the eternal word of God. And everything that was revealed in Christ Jesus was a consequence of what God had ordained in eternity and expressed repeatedly and accurately and faithfully and progressively 
throughout the Old Testament scriptures until one day the light dawned. One day the heavens opened up and the sun came out and Christ has come. And John the Baptist comes and says, the kingdom of heaven is here. It's at hand. It's the second thing we know here in the text. Not only is the gospel rooted in the eternal mind of God as, it, as it's expressed in his word, but the, the gospel declares to men the true problem of sin. And, and here's where this passage can be, can be problematic for us because of its familiarity. Notice here that the, the gospel proclaimed by John exposes something in men. It exposes the real problem with mankind and even Israel. I mean, it would be one thing if John shows up preaching at Thyatira or Sidon or even Samaria, for that matter. But he doesn't. He shows up in Judea and preaches the gospel and says, you are unclean. Your king is here. He stands at the door and look at you, Israel. You are unclean. The problem was sin. They were unclean. They were unholy before their God. And the message was shocking to the Jews. It was shocking. And we know this was shocking because Mark doesn't give us the full story. We, we could turn to Matthew and, and to John's Gospels and see a little bit more of the flavor. But John called Jewish people, listen to this, he called Jewish people to be baptized. That was offensive. Why was it offensive? Because only, only Gentiles were to be baptized. Only Gentiles were to be baptized. Israelites took the mark of circumcision, identifying in their flesh with their father Abraham. But if you were a Gentile and wanted to convert to Judaism, you wanted to become an Israelite, you wanted to participate in the covenant promises of Israel, you know what you had to do? You had to go take a bath. You had ceremonially to wash yourself and then take the mark of circumcision and then be granted access into the covenant. So those who prided themselves in being sons of Abraham said, this baptism thing isn't for us. We don't have an inherent uncleanness because we are children of Abraham. But multiple Old Testament passages declare the uncleanness of Israel. See, this is one of those many places where Jesus would have looked at the, the Pharisees and says, have you not read? Do, do you, have you read your Bible? Because over and over and over again, I have in my word declared to you that you are not clean. For example, and I'll just give you one example. In Ezekiel 36, verse 24, and Ezekiel makes much of the uncleanness of Israel, by the way. But in Ezekiel 36, verse 24, the word of the Lord comes and says, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. See, the gospel demands, first and foremost, first and foremost, that a man, that a woman, that a child acknowledge sin and uncleanness. See, isn't this the, the as, as you've talked to your own family members and talked to neighbors and talked to coworkers, isn't this the biggest barrier? 
to get somebody to admit, I'm a mess, I am unclean. Not that I'm imperfect and I make mistakes. Everybody will acknowledge that. But fundamentally, essentially, inherently, I am wicked to the core. You see, John comes. Look what it says. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Not to the Gentiles, but to the Jews. And the response from the ruling authorities, you can imagine what it was. They were furious. They were indignant. You can read in John's, in John's gospel in chapter 1, it expands upon this a little bit, but I also want to show you in Matthew. Turn back to your left to Matthew's gospel in chapter 3 and, and allow your, your, your sanctified imagination to kind of construct this, this scene in your mind. Matthew gives us the same kind of information about John. He was, he, he was in a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt, which was the kind of traditional expected way of dress for a prophet. Think about Elijah, just a rugged man's man, clothes of camel hair, a leather belt. I mean, rugged. This is not, you know, a Gucci suit. This is, this is, this is not a well-dressed man. This is a, this is a rugged wilderness-dwelling, wild-honey-eating, locust-eating man. In verse 7 of Matthew 3, when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Now, that doesn't sound very politically correct, does it? That doesn't sound very nice. Why would John say that? Well, because this wasn't his first encounter with them. And, and he knows their protests. And we know he knows because what he says next. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What is John saying? That means nothing. That means absolutely nothing with respect to this question. Are you clean before God? When you stand before a, the holy, holy, holy God of Israel on the day of judgment, what will your plea be? Because you're no better than the stones on the ground with respect to your cleanliness before God just because you're sons of Abraham. Verse 10, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John employs two different images to confront the Pharisees in their self-righteousness. Later on, we would hear Jesus say, the physician comes to heal who? The sick. The one who's not sick doesn't need a doctor. And so Jesus rebuked the Pharisees because of their own self-righteousness, because they viewed themselves as inherently clean because, one, they were sons of Abraham, and two, look at all their law-keeping. Look at how careful and fastidious and scrupulous they were about even tithing their mint and cumin and dill. And Jesus said, that doesn't accomplish anything for you because the very nature of the law cannot produce righteousness. The law cannot do that. It wasn't designed by God to do that. So the first image 
that, that John uses is the axe being laid to the root. This is not merely a pruning of Israel. The woodsman has come, and it's as if one more stroke of the axe, and the whole tree falls. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Do you hear how confrontational this is? This is not a seeker-sensitive camp meeting that he's holding here. John looks at these, I mean, imagine the scene. All their robes and the phylacteries and the, and the fringes hanging off of their garments and the entourage, and, and everybody in Israel says, wow, these are the most righteous men I've ever seen. And John looks at them and says, you brood of vipers. Who told you to flee from the wrath that is to come? The axe is being laid at the root. You're about to fall. You self-righteous hypocrites. Then he says, I baptize you with water for repentance. What's he saying? You need a bath. You need to be cleaned. And you can't see it because of the blindness of your own righteousness. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Here's the second image. His winnowing fork is in his hand. You know what a winnowing fork is? It would look kind of like a big hay fork. And so on the threshing floor, there would be the harvest come in, the, the grain, the wheat, would have, or barley would have been threshed out, stomped on by an ox or, or, a, or a, a threshing wheel of some kind. But then you have the chaff, the husk and, and, and all the, the unusable parts, and the actual grain. And they would take the fork and they would throw it up into the air, and even a slight breeze would carry the chaff away. That's what we see, by the way, in Psalm 1, isn't it? The wicked are not so. They're carried away like the chaff of the wind. And the grain, being heavier, would fall to the ground, and then you could harvest and maintain the grain separate from the chaff. And John says, the Lord is here. His kingdom is here, and his winnowing fork is in his hand to separate the wheat from the chaff. And the chaff is going to burn with unquenchable fire. Well, this didn't go over well with the Pharisees. This didn't go over well with the rulers of the Jews. And John reports how they've come because they've been sent They've been sent by the Sanhedrin, by the higher-ups. You go and give a message to John. This is almost like a, a godfather kind of sequence. They're coming out and making threats to John. And John's not having it. He pushes back at them. But notice, John was baptizing, though. It wasn't the Pharisees. It wasn't the rulers of the Jews who were being baptized. Who were being baptized? The ordinary, common people who were willing to acknowledge their uncleanness. Back to Mark chapter 1. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized him by, by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. They were willing to receive the message that they were unclean, even as Jews, even as Israelites, even those who bore the mark of circumcision. They were willing to accept this, and they confessed their sins. 
Well, doesn't this demand a question of you and me? What's our fundamental orientation to the Word of God with respect to our own inherent righteousness? Do we find in our, in our soul, do we find in our heart when we're confronted with the Word of God, our defense attorney showing up and saying, but, 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 but I'm, I'm, I'm righteous. I, I didn't do the crime. That, that's not me. I'm not like that. What do we say? See, wasn't that Peter's first reaction when Jesus went to wash his feet? <laughs> he was indignant. You're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, I don't wash your feet. All of you is unclean. Oh, then wash all of me. That ought to be our posture, saints. Do, do you believe and confess that unless God cleanses and pardons you, that you stand before him filthy, sinful, wretched, dirty, in need of a bath? but not just an outward washing. And that's what we find next, is, is John doesn't just say, this is the end of it. Now you can say, I got, I got baptized in the Jordan River, which, by the way, wasn't particularly clean. And, and you, you don't just say, oh, I'm done now. I'm, I'm good now. I went through this external rite, this external ordinance, and now I'm all good. That wasn't John's gospel. It's not our gospel. John's gospel not only proclaimed an outward cleansing, but the need for a whole inward reformation. And that's what we find next, is the gospel promises a wholesale change in the inner man. Look what he says in verse 7. And he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water. Now think about that statement. It's a loaded statement. Those of you who stand before me, who are willing to acknowledge your uncleanness, who are willing to acknowledge the problem of indwelling sin, I've baptized you. You know, ceremonially, outwardly, publicly, you've acknowledged that you are not right with God. But that isn't the end. The one coming after me is mightier than me, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. See, what is John saying? He's saying you need more than an outward reformation. You need more than an outward cleansing. You need more than religious ordinances. You need more than religious outcroppings. You need an inward reformation, a complete overhaul from the inside out. And this is the gospel promise. It promises an inward change. Now again, this isn't new. John stands as the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he is preaching an Old Testament message. That not only does your, the foreskin of your flesh need to be circumcised, but your heart needs to be circumcised also. Listen to Jeremiah Jeremiah 31. It's an easy one, to, easy reference to remember. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Now, now God is, is speaking through Jeremiah to his exiled people. Because of their sin, because of their wickedness, because of their perpetual and unrepentant rebellion against God, God has sent them into exile for 70 years. 
And in the midst of that exile, God speaks through Jeremiah and says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Because the day is coming. It's not yet, but the day is coming when I will make a new covenant. And when he says new, he means new. Meaning not like the old one. The old one was a covenant of works, and you broke it. Your fathers broke it. You have broken it. Your children will break it. Because the law doesn't change your heart. The law declared from Sinai could not redeem anyone. It was only by faith in the promised Redeemer who would come that any man, any woman, any child could be eternally secured to Yahweh. Jeremiah continues, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it onto their hearts. Where was the law written at, when it was given at Sinai? It was on a stone tablet, wasn't it? And they put it in the Ark of the Covenant, and it was sealed away nice and tidy for the people to, to remember it. But it didn't affect anything inwardly. God says, the day's coming. New covenant, new terms, better promises. And in that covenant, I will write my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is the gospel that John preaches. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Basically, repent means acknowledge your sinful condition. And then rest on the promise of the king who is now here. Rest upon him. In the passage I read to you just a few moments ago from Ezekiel 36, I'm gonna, one key part I want to reemphasize. Moreover, says the Lord, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. See, here's the promise of the new covenant. Unlike the old covenant, which gave the law, says Paul in Galatians, as a tutor to guide you, to show you your unrighteousness, to show to you infallibly that you are unclean and incapable of saving yourself. The, the new covenant comes and says, I will write that law on your own heart. I will give you a heart of flesh instead of a heart of a stone. And here, John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, comes and says, the time that Jeremiah spoke about, the time that Ezekiel spoke about, the time that Moses, that Moses spoke about, the time that all the prophets spoke about, it's here. 
so that when Jesus comes to be baptized, John looks up and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John recognized this is the spotless, sinless, eternal Lamb of God. The Son of God. And John makes it plain now that that the waiting is over. Messiah has come. And he makes it plain that the newness of the new covenant is that the washing is not merely external. John says, I've baptized you with water, but one mightier than I has come who will not baptize you in the waters of the Jordan merely. He will baptize you with his spirit supernaturally, divinely, permanently, irrevocably cleanse you from your sin, forgiving your iniquity, and remembering your sin no more. He says this begins with a new heart of flesh that desires to change from the inside. As John, I mean, you can imagine the scene as he, as he baptizes and he preaches to the people. He's telling them, don't be content with this. Don't be content with this external washing. Don't be content with your public declaration. Search after the Messiah, the one who's coming, the one who is here, who will do in you things that I can't do. No preacher could do. Jesus said about John, I tell you, among those born of women, he's the greatest. He was the greatest of the prophets. And yet Jesus says, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What, what, what did Jesus mean by that? He meant John lost his head, literally, before Jesus was crucified as the sinless, spotless, perfect Lamb of God. Before God raised Jesus from the dead, before Jesus declared victory over sin and death and hell, before Jesus was exalted and raised to heaven and seated at the right hand of God, before all of that, John died. The least in the kingdom of heaven can testify to those things that John didn't even know about yet. Or John could foretell, but he hadn't seen. So John is saying, the one mightier than I comes with a gospel greater than just this outward baptism. It's, it's a gospel of complete new life. John declares that one is coming who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and not merely with water. Turn over to John's gospel. And again, one of those so, so familiar texts to us. Here's this exchange with, between Jesus and a man of the Pharisees, a man named Nicodemus. See, sometimes we think of Nicodemus and we think, well, he's this you know, kind, sweet, you know, humble man. He's a Pharisee. We've seen over and over again how the party of the Pharisees responded to this message of repentance. And John tells us there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man comes to Jesus by night. He's looking for cover. And he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. See, John has already appeared. It says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus says, unless you're born again, you can't even see it. 
Well, here in the cover of darkness, Nicodemus kind of scratches his head and says, how can a man be born when he's old? He's trying to wrap his head around this because he's thinking materialistically. He's thinking in terms of the paradigm he knows, outward righteousness. I mean, so help me understand, Jesus. I mean, do I, I'm an old man. Do I go back into my mother's womb? How, how does, what does this look like? Look at verse 5. Jesus said, answer, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see, John the Baptist and Jesus preached the same gospel. You must be born again. What, what has to happen is you have to have an inward change. No, no outward display of religion will ever suffice. No getting your doctrine exactly right will ever be enough. No measure of external conformity will ever satisfy the holy judgment of God. What John said, what Jesus says, is you need the Spirit of the living God to do in you what the prophets foretold, creating you a new heart, a heart of flesh, rather than a heart of stone. William Henderson, in his commentary, just very succinctly says this, the gospel is the message of salvation addressed to a world lost in sin. Not what we must do, but what God in Christ has done is the most important part of that good news. John said, you're unclean. You need to be baptized. Some responded and said, we recognize that. Baptize us, cleanse us. They come up out of the water and John says, now what you need, what you need is to be born again. You need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You need the supernatural work of God to create in you a new man entirely, a new woman entirely. The 18th century Scottish preacher, Ralph Erskine, famously penned these words in a poem, a rigid matter was the law, demanding brick, denying straw. But when, my, when with gospel tongue it sings, it bids me fly, it gives me wings. You see, the law cannot, wasn't designed to, accomplish in you any measure of righteousness. What the law does what the Old Covenant did was expose, was to overturn and to show you, to show me the uncleanness that's there. And what we need then is the gospel balm of new birth. We need the greater work that comes only by means of the Spirit's power, by believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 10, if you'll turn with me there, this is, this is the central message. Pick up 
throughout the book of Hebrews, from the very first paragraph to the end, we, we can say that Jesus is better. He's better than Moses. He's better than the angels. He's, he's a better testimony. He's a better revelation. He brings a better covenant built on better promises. And in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, for since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect or clean those who draw near. See, what he's saying is the whole Old Testament system with all of its sacrifices, all of its ordinances, all of its rules, all of its laws was never designed to make one clean before God. No external religious system could ever accomplish that. That wasn't its point. It wasn't its purpose. It wasn't its end. Otherwise, verse 2, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? I mean, if it actually cleansed you, why do you keep doing it? There would be no need to keep cleaning. I mean, when you took a shower this morning and you got out, if you did your job, you didn't have to get back in. Right? Later today, you'll have to, or tomorrow you'll have to do it again, but for now, you were clean. Verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, you may think to yourself, well, I've never, I've never relied upon the blood of bulls or goats. I've never killed anything in my life. I've never offered a sacrifice. I've, I've never claimed those things. So this doesn't really apply to me. Not so fast. What other ordinance? What other means? What other, what other ceremony have you invented in your own mind to satisfy God's righteousness? I'll double down on my Bible reading. I'll pray harder. I, I, I'll make myself more righteous before my neighbors, before my coworkers. It's impossible. If even the blood of bulls and goats, given according to the commands of God, couldn't accomplish a cleansing in you, don't think the silly things that we invent in our own minds to satisfy God will work either. They won't. Verse 5, Hebrews 10, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, the first covenant, in order to establish the second, the new covenant. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So how is it? How is it that you can be born again and obtain the cleansing that you need? How is it that you could be born again and become the new man, the new woman that you need to be? Believe upon the sacrifice 
of the perfect Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that God has offered him up as a propitiation, as a satisfaction for his wrath, and that God has raised him from the dead, demonstrating to all the world that he's accepted the sacrifice. Verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Do you feel like that some days? Do you feel like you've offered the same sacrifice over and over? And you know, your own conscience bears witness to you that it hasn't taken away your sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He is cleansed for all time. See, John said, one is mightier than I who's coming. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandal strap. I've baptized you merely with water. But the one coming after me will baptize you with his own Holy Spirit. By a single offering, he will perfect for all time those who belong to him. And the Holy Spirit, verse 15, also bears witness to us after after saying, this is the covenant that I made with them. After those days, he's quoting from Jeremiah 31. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer an offering for sin. Why is there no longer an offering for sin? Because the cleansing has taken root. The cleansing is not merely external. The cleansing has accomplished what God intended to accomplish. It's created a new man with a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. It's created a new woman who's been born again, no longer constrained by the sin that dwells within. Can you say confidently that your sins are cleansed? Can you rest in the finished work of Jesus, the very one that John proclaims? Can you rest securely in the one, not only that John has proclaimed, but who has been proclaimed in your hearing today? The one that God caused to be crucified for your sin and raised from the dead, according to the Scriptures. Confess your sin. Confess your helplessness. Confess your need for mercy. Flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've never done that, may today be that day of salvation. For the very first time, confess that I have no hope. I'm helpless. I I, I can't fix myself. I, I can't stop the thoughts that I have, the words that I speak, the acts that I do, because all of that flows out of an unclean, polluted well. And I need a work of grace within me by the power of Christ's Spirit to change me from the inside out. And for those of you who are in Christ, perhaps you've walked with Christ for a year or 50 years, may the Lord grant you the grace to renew your repentance. This doctrine of repentance must be proclaimed again and again and again. Because while we are justified 
in Christ. We are cleansed in Christ. Our sins are pardoned. God remembers our sin no more. We know. We know that iniquity still dwells within us. We need that ongoing cleansing work of the Spirit of Christ within us. Amen. Our Father, our God, precious Redeemer and Son, blessed and Holy Spirit, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise of power. Lord, will you teach us to depend upon the power of your Spirit and not depend upon our own strength, not depend upon our own willpower, not depend upon our own abilities, but in fact to forsake all of those things and to plead the blood of Christ alone. We ask this in his name and for our good. Amen.